And now if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah, specifically the sixth chapter as we look this evening at Nehemiah 6 and just a bit of Nehemiah 7 up through verse 4. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hekafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, Strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methodabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what? Man such as I could go into the temple and live. I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, 
In those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son Jehonahan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported his words to me. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than Metin. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their own home, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us, how it convicts us, how it encourages us, how it comforts us. Please use your word even this evening. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at Nehemiah chapter 5 at the opposition that comes to the church from within. How it's opposition that's not expected but that can be fierce. How there is a sense in which those who are in the church can be the church's worst enemy. This evening we look at a different kind of opposition, but it is related. It is opposition that comes from the world, from without, but it is related to difficulties within the church. Because one of the things that we must understand as the people of God is that our enemy, the deceiver, seizes upon any opportunity of weakness and division that he finds to sow discord. Satan is a wily enemy. And he does not attack where the church is strongest. He seeks out the weak points in the church and attacks the people of God at the most difficult times. And that's what we see here this evening. Nehemiah has just started to get things straightened out. He's had division. He's had conflict. He's had sin running throughout the people. And he has finally gotten everyone what it appears to be on the same page. And then the attacks begin. The attacks from Satan first begin in a, in a subtle way. Now, the work up until this point had been very hard for Nehemiah and the Jews. Initially, the task had seemed completely insurmountable. We saw in chapter 2 and in verse 17, as Nehemiah spoke to the people, he said, You see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. And if you were standing there that day, you would say, how can we possibly fix this? What can we possibly do? 
And even as they began to work, opposition began sniping at them. In chapter 4, there was taunting and sarcasm. When the enemies heard that they were building the wall, they were angry and they were enraged and they jeered. And they said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish? Yes, that's what they're building. If a fox goes up against the wall, he'll knock it down. Sarcasm and abuse. And then, of course, the threats and problems that came from within. And now, after all of that, success is at hand. You know what that feels like, don't you? Whenever you've taken on a task that seems insurmountable and you've worked very hard at it, whether it is something in your family or something at work or a task that you have seek, you've sought to do, and you're just on the cusp of seeing it become a reality. It's an exciting time. It's an encouraging time. Nehemiah had brought the people together and now the wall was absolutely all but completed. He actually says there's no gaps in the wall. There's only one thing left to do and that is to put the gates together at the wall. He has to finish up by sealing off this area. It's one crucial element that is done. He actually just says it in a parenthetical. He has to put the doors in the gates. Now, it's just one small thing that's left, right? But let me ask you a question. What good are walls with no gates? Not very good, is it? If you have a spot in the wall that's open... All of the other spots don't do you any good. So while there's just one final thing to be done, it's a crucial thing to be done. And because of this, the enemies arise again. It's the same enemies that we saw in chapter 2 with Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. It's the same three men that we see in chapter 2 and verse 19. But whereas before they had openly mocked Nehemiah and the Jews, now here... They come softly. And they come to Nehemiah and they say, you know, we really need to get together at this village in the plain of Ono. They they want to be a help now. They want to be a part of the solution. They've had a change of mind all of a sudden. And so they, they pick a place that is visibly neutral. Ono is on the northwest part of Judea, about halfway between Jerusalem and Joppa. So it's an area that Nehemiah should feel comfortable going to. They haven't asked him to come to their house. They have marked out a neutral location. This is sort of the fodder of nearly every action movie you've ever seen, right? They claim that they're going to meet you in his place that's public and neutral and where you'll be safe, right? And then when people show up, there are snipers all around and machine guns and bombs and all sorts of things everywhere. You see, Nehemiah understands this. He doesn't need a movie to describe it for him. 
But you see, there's a real temptation here for Nehemiah to be drawn in because it does seem reasonable for those who are on the wrong side of this issue to want to make nice. They've lost the fight. The wall is built. And it makes sense for them to want to make peace, to want to be involved, to compromise with Nehemiah. But Nehemiah will not be drawn into this compromise. He knows they've opposed God's work and him. He knows, we see in verse 2, that they are lying. And they are opposed to this as the very first day that they were. And so he understands that he cannot compromise his principles and his work. Because he knows that the enemy is lying. And he's convinced of the greatness of the cause that God has given to him. And he knows he does not need to compromise. He has come this far by the grace of God. And he will persevere. He also knew that there was no common cause here. What would the enemies gain from coming together with Nehemiah? Do they want to glorify God? No. Do they want the Jews to be safe within the walled city? No. Now you see, this is the same thing that you and I face in different ways today. There are calls to compromise each and every day from the world. To compromise the things we say. The things we watch. The way we treat other people. The way we spend our money. The way we make our priorities. And the very first thing that we must do is not think about the reasonableness of the request. The very first thing that we must think about is, are we heading in the same direction? Do we have the same goal? Do we want to bring the same glory to God? You see, Nehemiah understands this. And he stands firm against this request. Four times they come to him. Four times he stands firm. He will not be drawn in by the intrigue. He will stand with the Lord. But the enemy will not give up so easily. They try four times and then they try a fifth time. But not not with intrigue at this point. Now with insinuation. With saying things about Nehemiah and about his mission. In the fifth trip, they up their game a bit. They send a letter, an open letter. Now, you have to understand what this means. Perhaps you've gotten the modern version of this and been annoyed in the mail. You open up your mail and the letter is unsealed. And if you're of a more conspiratorial bent, you might say, I wonder if the mailman is reading my mail. I wonder if my neighbors are reading my mail. Well, that's exactly the issue here. They didn't have envelopes with self-sealing adhesive. But the way you sent a letter was you would write it upon a scroll and you would roll it up and seal it off with a wax seal so that everyone would know that no one had looked at it because if they opened it up, the seal would be broken. But the enemies here now intentionally send a letter that is open. Sanballat doesn't seal the letter because he wants everyone to read it. Imagine every messenger that touches this letter. 
and every friend of every messenger and every town that the letter goes through. He wants what's in the letter to be spread and he wants Nehemiah to know that it is being spread. It's all part of a plan of insinuation and attack. It is completely against protocol. His intention is to spread slander and gossip. Now, I read a good definition of gossip this week. Gossip is news that you have to hurry and tell somebody else before you find out it isn't true. That's what Sanballat is trying to do. And notice the the vague origins. Verse 6. It is reported among the nations. And and later on, according to reports, you know, this is what famously goes on in so many churches. Well, there are a bunch of people who think, you know, several people have said, really? What several people? Who are they? So I can go find out more what their concerns and complaints are. You see, there's a vagueness to this. No evidence at all is offered. You notice what Nehemiah is accused of. He's accused of intending to rebel. How do you prove that you don't intend to do something that you haven't done yet? You see the insinuation? You see the attack? It's unprovable. And you see, this is a personal attack that comes against Nehemiah. It's not just about the Jews. It's become personal. Nehemiah has rejected the enemy four times, and now they say, you know, it's been reported that you want to be the king. Now, you can just imagine the malice here. They know they're circulating a report that they hope will make its way to the ears of the Persian monarch saying, the man you sent intends to rebel against you. And like any good gossip, I use that in quotes, it has a kernel of truth that makes it believable. Because you see, Jerusalem and other cities had rebelled against great kings. And what better time to rebel than when you've just finished building walls? So what does Nehemiah do? The enemy is coming to him and saying, you know, we can help you. Look at verse 7. Now let us come and take counsel together. You're in a pickle, Nehemiah. Let us help. How does he handle this? He does three things. Three things that I want to encourage you should be a part of your repertoire of dealing with gossip and innuendo. The very first thing he does is he stands on the truth. And he doesn't make any excuses. Do you see this? He sent to them saying, No such things as you say have been done, in verse 8. He basically says in diplomatese, You're full of it. Show me. We haven't done anything like this. I'm not being intimidated. And then the second thing he does is that he prays to God for strength. Look at verse 9. 
But now, O God, strengthen my hands. You see, Nehemiah is also a man of God and intelligent enough to know that just standing by himself is not sufficient. He needs God's help. So when we are under attack, we must stand. But we cannot stand in our own strength. We must stand with the Lord. And then there's a third thing that he does. He goes back to work. He doesn't let this upset him. He doesn't let this throw him off his game. He doesn't let this dissuade him from his purpose. And if you understand or have ever been the the object of an attack by gossip, if you've ever had people insinuate things about you or make innuendos about you, you know it is very difficult to go about your ordinary business. It takes up your mind. You Think over and over again about it. Why is this happening? What are they trying to do? How can I avoid this? It consumes you. Nehemiah gives us good advice. Stand firm on the truth. Go to the Lord for strength. And get back to work. Because if you don't, you're empowering those who seek to attack you. This is what Nehemiah does. Well, At this point, I can't even imagine how frustrating this must be for Sanballat and Tobiah. They've tried to be subtle. And now they go with more open opposition. And so in verse 10, we see Nehemiah going into the house of Shemaiah. You see, they still won't give up. Now they're actually going to try and work within the Jews. And Shemaiah the priest comes to Nehemiah and he says, you need to come with me. We need to hole up in the temple because they're trying to kill you. And they're trying to kill me too. The only place we'll be safe is in the temple. Now, if it is true that this Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, is the same Deliah, who's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 24, verse 18, as a priest. It is very likely that Shemaiah is a priest of Israel. So, one of the priestly caste itself has been co-opted by God's enemies. This is important. So, what does Nehemiah do here? This is a plausible problem, isn't it? It's very believable to think that Sanballat and Tobiah are going to try and kill Nehemiah. They've tried just about everything else up to this point. Why would Nehemiah not believe that he's being threatened? Why would he not take the offer of help? Well, to paraphrase Shakespeare, something is rotten in the state of Jerusalem. You see, because... Shemaiah the priest is asking Nehemiah to go to a place that the scripture forbids him from going. You see, he's asking him to go to a point and a place in the temple that Nehemiah is not permitted. Numbers 18.7 says that the priests and their sons shall guard their priesthood for all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give you your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Nehemiah here is saved, not by his wits, nor by his leadership capability. He's saved by his understanding and knowledge of God's word. 
he knows that if Shemaiah is asking him to do something that is contrary to God's word, it is not from the Lord. He's a false prophet. As a matter of fact, that's like the definition of a false prophet. You tell someone to do something contrary to God's word. And so Nehemiah understands He knows he's got to take his stand, that God is not warning him, that God wants him to stand firm in opposition to all who would seek to attack him. And he needs to remain faithful, not just for himself, but for others. Look at verse 12. I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And they hired him for this purpose that I should be afraid and sin. And then they could walk around and tell everyone what a horrible sinner I was and not to pay attention to me. You see, this kind of attack can come. And your great defense is found in God's Word. Then we see a final attack. It begins here in verse 15. So the victory is all but won here. The wall is finished. The doors are laid in the gates. The wall is rebuilt. The enemies are restrained. They Think less of themselves in their own eyes. God is being praised. It is victory. But we learn something else. Far too often, when we see, by God's grace, a victory, we let our guard down, don't we? Because we think everything is won. That's the situation here. Satan is always looking for an opportune time to attack, and we must always remain vigilant. Andrew Bonar puts it this way. He says, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. We ought never to let down our guard. For the enemy always seeks to attack, even when the enemy doesn't think victory is attainable. If you think that is silly and and doesn't make much sense, Satan doesn't make much sense. Every attack that he has made in your life is an attack after the victory, isn't it? Jesus has won the victory. Satan has lost. The lake of fire is prepared. God has laid it down in his word that the game is over. But that doesn't stop him from attacking. So remember that. That even after the victory is won, attacks can come. And you see, the enemy here seeks to discredit Nehemiah because they want to be able to make future attacks upon him. They want to limit his usefulness in the future. And so the nobles start sending letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah sends letters back to him. And now it's gone beyond just one priest. There are several people, several powerful people within the Jewish people who are working against Nehemiah. The enemy has been preparing this attack. They have been binding people by oath, which probably means they've come to agreements, economic agreements, promises to be made. They have worked to try and get into families that are powerful in the Jewish people. They've timed their words perfectly. This is... The way the enemy attacks, he's subtle. 
He's wily. Just to give you one example. Tobiah has influence because many in Judah are bound by oath to him and because the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jeconiah had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Now, stop the, I can't pronounce the names, and think about this for a minute. The son of Tobiah had married the daughter of Meshullam. That doesn't seem like much until you turn back in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3 and the account of the rebuilding of the wall. And those whom Nehemiah has put in charge of rebuilding the wall, and in verse 4 it says, And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekah, is repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, repaired. And then later on again in verse 30, after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelmaliah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalpha, repaired another section. After him, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, remained opposite his chamber. So you see, one who was building the wall had given his daughter to one who did not want the wall built. This is a matter of extreme attack. Vengeance. So we have to remember to be in it for the long haul. We have to remember that the enemy never gives up even when it seems that the battle is won. And what Nehemiah does is he is in this for the long haul. And so in conclusion, we see what he does in chapter 7, the first few verses. This is exactly what he does. He begins organizing the people for long-range success. He begins getting people who are committed to the cause. Gatekeepers, guards, musicians. He gathers them together. He needs people to lead them. So he finds the best people he can in chapter 7 and verse 2. He finds those who are faithful and God-fearing. And he puts them over the ones who will guard. And then he gives them a plan. He gives them their orders. He tells them what they are to do. How they are to act. He wants long-range success. He has worked hard and he wants to see God glorified. We too must be in this long-range. You've probably heard me say it before. I will say it again. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. You must be in this for the long haul. Our battle will not be finished until our captain returns. That is when the battle will be over. Until your captain returns, your call is to be at your post, to be watchful, to be vigilant, to know that opposition will not cease until it is all put under Jesus' foot. Praise the Lord that of a surety, That day is coming.